From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Should we not address the fact that people are still making $7.25 an hour and paying $800 plus a month in rent? or cannot afford childcare. You know, could we really say that that food is the issue if we don't address those problems first? This week on the show, we talk with the authors of Everybody Eats, a book about food justice interventions in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we hear about an anti-racist toolkit for farmers markets, plus an interview with Cardinal Spirits chef Abel Garcia, and a recipe for a melt-in-your-mouth treat made from spring flowers. All that and more coming up on Earth Eats after this. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and Renee Reed is here with some food and farming reports from Harvest Public Media. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Fallout from the war in Ukraine is making it hard for Midwestern farmers to plan out what they're planting this spring. Crop prices are all over the place. The cost of fertilizer is at an all-time high, and farmers are being encouraged to plant more wheat amid potential losses from Russia and Ukraine. Jennifer Hillman is a senior fellow at the Council on Farm Relations. She says all that uncertainty is making farmers' decisions difficult. Farmers, like everyone else, are reluctant to plunk down a lot of money um, in the absence of some kind of guarantees or insurance or backing um, if there is a risk that, you know, tomorrow everything could turn around and become very different. Hillman says the U.S. government should provide some financial assistance to farmers in order to keep up domestic food production. Two big Midwestern organizations are teaming up to feed refugees fleeing the Ukrainian war zone. As Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, they've secured seaports and shipping containers as well as a warehouse in Poland. Illinois-based Midwest Food Bank and Missouri-based Convoy of Hope are sending food and supplies to Ukrainian refugees. Mike Hoffman is the logistics director for the Midwest Food Bank. He says they've already sent over one sea container, which can feed about a quarter of a million people, and they plan to ship at least two more. This isn't something that, that's short-lived. This is going to be a long-term commitment. Let's say the war ends tomorrow. It'd be awesome. But there's a lot of infrastructure that's totally gone over there, and they're going to take a lot of support and a lot of need for quite a while. Hoffman says those containers have been entirely funded by community donations. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Food prices could be 5% higher in 2022 compared to last year. That would be the biggest one-year increase in 14 years. The latest report from the University of Missouri's Agriculture Research Group cites labor costs, fuel prices, and supply chain issues among the contributing factors. Pat Westhoff leads the group. He says some foods will see especially high prices. We have much larger increases year over year for meats, for fats and oils, for fresh fruits than you did for most other products. Westhoff says Russia's invasion of Ukraine will also likely have long-lasting effects on food prices, lengthening the amount of time before food inflation rates get back to normal. The average increase in food prices is 2.5%. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All and Dana Cronin for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed.
farmers' markets across the Midwest are summer havens, a welcoming community gathering space rich with healthy fruits, vegetables, and local goods. But people of color, both vendors and shoppers alike, have been systematically excluded from these spaces. A new initiative is trying to change that. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin spoke with Midwest-based Julia Lynn Walker, who helped the Farmers Market Coalition develop an anti-racist farmers market toolkit. So, before we talk about the toolkit itself, I'd like to hear your perspective on racism at farmers markets. You know, I'll be totally honest. When I think of farmers markets, I think of them as predominantly white spaces. Why is that? Exactly. And I think that it is, it's a reflection of our society overall. And it's a reflection of uh, beliefs that we hold that certain institutions are for certain people. And so, uh, and, and when people put into um, positions of power, however limited those positions may be, they make decisions that are consistent with their environment. Decisions consistent with, you know, what they see around them. And so if you consistently visit farmers markets that are all white, you don't think about what do I need to do to make sure that uh, uh, all people in the community are represented, whether it is the information you immediately disseminate or whether it's how you structure your market or in the even in terms of the items that you have. There's a couple of times I, I would walk in and say, oh, which vendor has okra? And they would just look at me or well, which vendor has collard greens? Well, none of our vendors, well then, those are the, I don't want kale, <laughs> you know. I want so you have if you really want to attract a particular market, then it's important to have the foods that that market wants. Otherwise, we won't come. So tell me about the toolkit. What is the overall goal? I would say to get people thinking, and then to get them to act based on new thoughts that come up. So it's to think, it's to help you think through. As I said before, like in terms of messaging, you know, really, how do you step back and look at the uh, kinds of material you're using, look at your market, you know, look at the vendors, and at each level of the process, ask yourself, what is the message being sent if I were to look at this from a different perspective? So uh, whether you are a, a for-profit, a non-profit, or a municipal agency, within each level, you have to talk about you know, decision-making, who's at the table to make the decision, whose voice is weighted, whose voice is listened to. And then once the decisions are made, how are those decisions implemented? And finally, is there a process by which we evaluate what happened and then reassess at some future point? What is your hope for the future? What do you hope a farmer's market, a typical farmer's market might look like down the road? Well, I would hope that it really is reflective of the community and that we have all kinds of people involved and there are all kinds of uh, uh, representation is not just in terms of the food, but it's in terms of the activities, the music, a lot of, you know, it, it is, and we really make it holistic. And I know that that's only possible when everybody is seated at the table. So I hope that at a minimum, that, that people who pick up the, the, the anti-racism toolkit, at the very least, will begin to work on how do I make sure that everybody is at the table? And once they're at the table, listen to them. That was Julia Lynn Walker, 
a market manager based in the Midwest who helped develop a new anti-racist farmer's market toolkit. She spoke with Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. After a short break, a conversation with the authors of Everybody Eats, Communication and the Paths to Food Justice. That conversation when Earth Eats returns. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Confronted with a glaring social problem, like, say, food insecurity in a community, the impulse to act, to try to do something about it, comes naturally, particularly to those in the social service sector. But well-meaning plans don't always have the outcomes we hope for, especially if those plans don't involve those most affected by the issue. A new book from University of California Press focuses on food justice conversations and interventions in the city of Greensboro, North Carolina. Josephine McRobbie spoke with the authors about what they learned in their research and what questions remain to be answered. Dr. Naisha Douglas and Dr. Marianne LaGreco are the authors of Everybody Eats, Communication and the Paths to Food Justice. The book is focused on food insecurity and food access programs in Greensboro, North Carolina. Between the years of 2009 and 2019, Greensboro was named on the Food Action and Research Center's list of major U.S. cities experiencing food hardship. It topped the list in 2015. When the two professors met, momentum was already growing to address issues of food disparities in the area. Some activities were centered around the historically black neighborhood of Warnersville. Here's Dr. Naisha Douglas. During this time, there was a feasibility study done by Mark Smith, who's the epidemiologist at Gifford County Health Department. And so they were doing this study around key areas in Greensboro, and they did it in, in zip codes. And so one of the zip codes was the Warnersville area where they identified people were having issues with high blood pressure, diabetes, and um, just some of these preventable diseases. So one of the things that Mark noticed was that the Warnersville neighborhood, they have the highest rates of poverty, but then also the highest rates of chronic health problems. And so he was really interested in working more closely with people who lived in that neighborhood to figure out where some of these problems and disparities and barriers might be coming from, and then what the people in the neighborhoods were really interested in focusing on as a way to address them. And one of the issues was food and the access to food and how many grocery stores are in within a one mile radius and can people get to the grocery stores and how do they get to the grocery stores and what are they eating or what are they picking up and do they have enough money you know and also during that time you know community gardens were starting to pick up a little bit more steam where people were wanting to grow their own food, not because they were hungry, but because of health reasons, right? They wanted to go back to gardening in a way that would save them money, but also would benefit them health-wise. And he invited us to become part of the conversations that were going on in Warnersville. Not long after that is when we started making news with the frack headlines, with the Food Research and Action Center. We were really well positioned, I think, as community groups to keep those conversations going. And we had already started to speak with folks in the neighborhood who had identified things like, 
urban gardens and community farms, mobile farmers markets, community stores, better walking paths as things that they wanted to see in their neighborhoods. And honestly, that's how Naisha and I met, was that we had started to work on implementing some of the farmers markets and mobile farmers markets ideas. And Naisha lived in the neighborhood. She'd invited, been invited to become a part of some of the interventions themselves. And then that's how she and I met and started to talk. Naisha was working on her PhD at uh, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and I was working as, at that time, an assistant professor, but then eventually associate professor at UNC Greensboro. Everybody Eats contains case studies of programming in Greensboro from 2009 to 2019 that aim to address food hardship and access. The professors look at the successes and failures of these interventions through the lens of communication studies. People often underestimate the role that communication plays in the community engagement, in the mobilizing of the resources, in the sustaining of the conversations. There were a couple of times when newcomers to the to the partnerships and the relationships uh, would be facilitating conversations and they would introduce me and they would say, oh, and this is Mary Ann. She's a communication professor at UNCG. She manages our social media. And I would say, wait, wait there's a little bit more to it than that. How are you gonna handle some of those tensions? How are you going to prioritize certain needs over others? Particularly in Warnersville, there was a, a sort of a reoccurring theme where people would come into the Warnersville and say, neighborhood and oh, you guys need this. And so this is what we're gonna do. And then after it didn't work, they were leave. There's a residual effect that happens when people come in and, and try to create something and it doesn't work. So because I was from the neighborhood and I understood the culture of the neighborhood, I knew a little bit more. I knew what would work and what would work because we've seen it before. The residents would be very leery of having anybody come in and try to create something when they weren't involved in the process. And they are very active um, within the neighborhood and they want to be involved. They want to preserve, number one, the history of the neighborhood and the integrity of the people that live in the neighborhood. Um, but they also do want to see change, but they want to see change on their own terms. So throughout the book, it's really conversations that Marianne and I have just trying to just kind of work through what we were experiencing. So I remember the first, when I heard the word food desert, I was like, desert? Desert means desolate, like no life, you know, it means dry. It means, you know, when I think of a desert, that's what I think of. I think of the Sahara Desert, like just sand and hot and no life. So food desert was a USDA term that was used to delineate neighborhoods that a certain number of the population lived below the poverty line and a certain number of the population was at least a mile away from a grocery store. And then a food swamp got used as an extension of that metaphor to talk about neighborhoods that had high concentrations of low quality food. And the USDA has moved away from some of that terminology. You know, when they come up with these terms, to me, it seems like there's a lot of racial undertones uh, associated with it because we all, a lot of people connect poverty with black and brown um, communities, right? They say, okay, you know, they use some of these key terms like low income, poverty, desert, swamp to, to make it seem like, you know, these people are suffering. If you're um, relating swamps to a specific area, you know, that area, a lot of people do not want to come to. Right. Um, I always had a problem with how people would label, 
you know, certain neighborhoods because I just feel like that was a misrepresentation or they trying to uh, take away from what their neighborhood is really like. For example, Warnersville was like a thriving community. At the end of the Civil War, a Quaker educator, lawyer, and minister named Yardley Warner purchased land in southeast Greensboro, the area now known as Warnersville. He bought 35 and a half acres and then sold parcels to formerly enslaved people at low cost. So they started developing and building themselves. And so it became a really thriving community back in the 1920s and the 1930s. The community where my grandmother um, grew up in, she would always say, you know, oh, we had this, we had movie theaters, we had beauty shops and everything was black owned and everybody, you know, was was doing their thing and everybody loved it until, you know, um, rezoning came in and and everybody, they started um, breaking up people. The Warnersville Community Garden required several years of planning by multiple stakeholder groups to open, and more importantly, to thrive. It currently operates with a paid farm manager and as an urban teaching farm. Understanding the neighborhood was key to breaking ground. I will give an example of my grandmother. My grandmother purchased her house in Warnersville in 1960. And so during that time, people had their own gardens, like she grew tomatoes and cucumbers in the backyard, but they also were growing food for themselves. Now there's a, there's actually like a a connection between me growing my food myself and then me actually growing food for other people. I honestly feel like there's a, something genetically or something within our DNA that triggers, uh, you know, times in which you know we were working for free we were working in in yards for free we were working in fields for free so there's a like a a connection to slavery and I remember having a conversation with one of the people in the neighborhood and there was like nah we're over gardening we're over that we've moved on from that and I'm like hmm I see that there's actual a a negative connotation when it comes to growing food for other people and not just other people, but people that don't look like me, right? And so, um, you know, they kind of shied away from that. They didn't They didn't want to be involved. And plus, you know, a lot of the um, residents were older and they could no longer be in the yard or be in the garden, you know, pulling weeds or harvesting or watering because it was hot. And so that, that played a role too. Um, they were still kind of like hesitant to want to be open to the idea of new programming or community garden or urban farm, you know, that's one of the things, if you was if you were to speak with some of the community members, you would have learned the historical reference of why they are questioning whether or not programs need to need to be placed within the Warnersville neighborhood because of things like that. Another case study looks at a series of pop-up and mobile farmers markets in Warnersville and other neighborhoods in Greensboro. It's really using a a food truck model in some ways to make a location mobile so that you are getting the resource, the intervention, the food to the people where they are. And it was something that I think was particularly needed because we face a lot of financial constraints in Greensboro and Guilford County when it comes to starting up new food retail and business spaces. 
And we cover a little bit of that in uh, the Downtown Greensboro Food Truck Pilot Project intervention. We were able to get some policies changed that then made it possible for us to do things like mobile farmers markets and take food trucks onto institutional spaces. And so we were able to test out ideas like, is it easier to catch people where they live and try to do a mobile or a pop-up farmer's market? Or is it easier to catch people where they frequently go? So for example, we had tested out some ideas at Cone Health Facilities, which is one of our major healthcare providers in Greensboro. So we were able to pop up the Mobile Oasis Farmer's Market there uh, in one of their parking lots. We also set up shop at social services where a lot of people would go to apply for food stamps or WIC or whatever social service was needed. And so that was another uh, site that we felt would would be very um, productive if we were to go to where people actually had um, were able to get services um, for their families. And then they can also come in and get a peach or apple or some groceries using their their EBT card. And we learned the need for the SNAP, EBT, and WIC through our initial pop-ups. That was the first big piece of feedback that we got from folks was that it's great that you all have this, but if you're going to do it long-term, you're going to need to be able to accept SNAP, EBT. And it also has created a space where then people realize that if you can incentivize people to use SNAP EBT at farmers markets, that's also good for the farmers and for the local vendors as well, because those funds are staying in the community. The book also examines downtown food truck legislation, an immigrant-owned restaurateur called Ethnosh, as well as an incubator kitchen. Addressing food insecurity is not only about addressing food access, it's about addressing intersections between access and poverty. And so some of those programs help to address the poverty side of things by allowing people more, I guess, I guess less financially risky entry points uh, into food markets, like through, through the food trucks. Uh, it also encouraged people to um, buy food and support local restaurants through programs like Ethnosh and to support restaurants that are owned by immigrants and first-generation folks who are serving the food from the cuisines, from the background and culture that they come from, but then also creating some of those lower-cost entry points like through our kitchen incubator programs so that people could test out whether or not they wanted to start up a food business without having to take on such huge financial risks as opening up their own kitchen to decide whether or not then they could sell their jams and jellies and sauces and things of that nature. But even more so, I think it's about changing the culture of the way that we talk about food. That when we are willing to test out some of these ideas, we're continuing to center food as something that's important to our communities and our cultures. Honestly, I think the way that the intervention shaped the bigger picture conversations around food is the single biggest impact that all of those interventions combined had. Uh, Because if you look today, some of them are very different than when they started out. Some of them have completely different partnerships. Some of them have morphed into something different. Some of them are on hiatus. Some of them have ended completely. At the same time, everyone across the board in Greensboro and Guilford County will acknowledge that 
we now speak differently about food and food security than we did 10 years ago. We know a lot more about how food systems work. We know a lot more about how all of the different pieces fit together. And I think most importantly, we know more about how to work in partnership to create some of the networks that are needed to make sure that people have access to food. Uh, For me, this really came into sharp relief during the pandemic. Small businesses are closing. Kids can't get food at school. How do we make sure that we're still using these relationships that we've built over the last 10 years? We were able to engage the community so quickly that within a week, we were able to move on to some of the mobilizing resources stages of it. We were able to do things like implement advanced ordering and drive through pickup systems at two of our farmers markets. So they never even had to close down during the lockdowns around COVID. Since topping the frack food hardship list in 2015, Greensboro fell to number 14 in the most recent study year. But the process of writing a book about some of these food justice strategies has brought up more questions than answers. Dr. Douglas wants to see a broader conversation moving forward. The more we thought about it, you know, we were like, well, is it really a food issue more than it is a poverty issue? You know, should we not address the fact that people are still making $7.25 an hour and still are paying $800 plus a month in rent or um, still cannot afford childcare. You know, could we really say that that food is the issue if we don't address those problems first? I know when people make more money or people have more residual income that they do spend more money on good food. They want to make healthier choices. But I think these questions something that we as a collective as a community could you know just really have you know deep and meaningful conversations about because anytime we bring up poverty nobody wants to talk about it nobody wants to talk about raising the minimum wage nobody wants to talk about income-based housing nobody wants to talk about um, affordable health care you can't put a band-aid on a gunshot wound because that's not the type of treatment or the type of uh, medication that you need to treat that type of problem. Those are the type of conversations that I'm willing to um, lead, I'm willing to be a part of. I would like to see other things to happen um, surrounding the conversation of food. Everybody Eats, Communication and the Paths to Food Justice is available now through University of California Press. For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. Find more about the book and about the history of the Warnersville neighborhood at eartheats.org. Still ahead, a conversation with the executive chef at Cardinal Spirits and a recipe for a sweet treat made with locally foraged spring flowers. Stay with us.
Welcome back. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Just before the coronavirus pandemic shut down bars and restaurants here in Bloomington, Cardinal Spirits had just brought on a new executive chef. Before Abel Garcia had a chance to debut his culinary vision for the restaurant, Cardinal Spirits had to pivot the focus of their operations to survive the pandemic restrictions. The distillery immediately started producing hand sanitizer, which, if you'll remember, was in short supply in those early days. And they put energy into canned cocktail production and carry-out. Eventually, they offered food for takeout as well. Last week, we did a recipe video shoot at Cardinal Spirits for the Earth Eats YouTube channel. Chef Abel Garcia shared two fun recipes with us, which will soon be up on YouTube. I took the opportunity to sit down with Abel Garcia with my microphone to talk about how things are going at the restaurant. My name is Abel Garcia. I'm the executive chef at Cardinal Spirits in Bloomington, Indiana. Been the chef for a little over two years, and it was I came in um, the February right before the pandemic. So call it timing, call whatever you want, something aligned to get me here, um, and. It just, it was one of those things where, you know, I was ready, you know, hit the ground running. And then as soon as the pandemic hit, it was just more, you know, hold the brakes and let's see what the company as a whole did. And between taking myself and our, you know, our bar team, the whole company twisted on, on a dime and said, we're doing now all the sanitizer. And, you know, out of that, we became the first people to make sanitizer in the state. So very interesting, but (laughs) I'm glad it's over. (laughs) And then at some point, Cardinal did start offering food for, for takeout. How did you adjust your menu to that, and how, how did you adapt to that situation? That first started off with me actually getting COVID. You know, I was asymptomatic, so I just had to stay at home. I lived with roommates, and they worked at bars, so it was very much a stay in my room unless I had to use the restroom or take a shower kind of thing or let my dog out. I was very much isolated in there, so I was ordering takeout for about 10 days in a row. That's kind of how the idea for the menu started. It wasn't necessarily like, what do I want to offer to to take out, but what are the failures that I'm seeing in the takeout that I'm getting? And that just came down to like fried items, no, you know, no-nos, you know, is this sauce holding as it's going there? And that kind of got the ball rolling to being like, okay, if we're going to do our carryout, then let's really focus on uh, something that's going to last in a box for up to 15 minutes. You know, I have friends that live in uh, Ellisville, and they were really nice about if I had an ice cream coming out, which we have here, you can let, you can try. But if we have, you know, I had, when that ice cream came out, I was like, can you drive from Ellisville, pick it up, and then drive it back home and tell me what you think. And, you know, it'd be nice to, for them to just be like, you know, it was almost melty, but I threw it in the freezer five minutes and it was good to go. And that's good enough R&D for me to be like, you know, even like my friend with two kids in a minivan driving all the way to Ellisville, it still worked. And that's kind of how it kept going from there because... Uh, you know, a lot of places here around town, we're still doing french fries to, for, obviously, for delivery. I, I saw someone do mussels for delivery. I don't know why they were doing that, but it was one of those, like, let's not do that. It just had to rethink what carry out meant. And, um, you know, we were also kind of thinking about delivery, but, you know, we couldn't find a delivery service we really enjoyed. Um, you know, I used to work in pizza back in the day, and when we had our delivery drivers, it was very much a thing where they had to look a certain way. Yeah, you know, they couldn't smell like cigarettes. It had to be in a timely fashion. So just from that kind of standpoint, you don't really always know who's picking up the food and dropping it off to you. You know, um, and when that person sometimes is the only face of the company that you'll see, it, you know, you really need to think about 
is that the direction we want to go? And for us, we were just like, no, 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 we're a little bit more personal than that. You know, we wanted to see our guests anyway, so having carry out and having our bottle uh, carry out as well, just it all just made more sense for us to do it that way. So what kinds of things did you did you offer in those first menus? We needed to have something close to a burger. We know we couldn't do a burger because, you know, the temps were gonna fail just because of what we're talking about with the carryout time. So one thing that's on our menu to this day that came out of that carryout is our steak sandwich. Take a whole big old ribeye, treat it like prime rib, you slice it and then you sear it. Nice and easy, we finish it with our Lake House Rum Onions here in house, which takes almost an entire bottle to make that sauce, which is deliciously boozy and spicy. And then brioche bun, some greens, and a bourbon a soy aioli sauce we make here in house. That was one of the things that for carry out that it not only showcased our booze products, but also something that's just as delicious and could hold up to that 15 minute time that we were already thinking. So, and when we were going into our dining, that was probably the easiest thing that everyone was like, please do not take that away. <laughs> Love that meat, you know, it, it, it was everything from just like, it's more tender than a burger to, you know, older folks being like, I love just not having to bite through it all the way. It, it just pulls apart. So it was really something that not only did it work for what we were trying to accomplish, but it was so well received that it had to come on to our main menu. So that was, that was a really nice one. What other kinds of things did you offer? Uh, our veggie burger at the time was an interesting take. Um, we wanted to do something that nobody else was doing at the time. Black bean burgers in, in Bloomington are just played out. So we were just wanted to do something different. So we offered a beet patty that was a little softer. And to encase it, we actually did a rice paper wrap around it. So And then we finished that with uh, something that was kind of like a, the sauce we were uh, doing earlier, but it was a, a myploy cucumber and red cabbage slaw that went right on top of that and some fresh apples. So it was a very interesting take on root vegetables, fresh apples, and an Asian twist on there. It just happened to work, and people really enjoyed it. It's really exciting for vegetarians to get something that's not the typical, you know, and that that same amount of care has gone into creating it. So that's that's really nice. Did that take off pretty well? Like, were people coming in and and picking up takeout food? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's. It was, you know, we had our, our good days and bad days like everyone else, but I, I can definitely say that we were definitely on people's rotating list of where to get it. You know, we were either that Wednesday spot, Friday, you know, however you want to put it, but it was nice to see the same folks coming back and back again, you know, and even on, they were the whole industry as far as not just like the workers, but the, the guests were so just lax and so understanding about what was going on with, uh, you know, just, just the supply chain failing for us. Um, but luckily for us, it didn't really hit us too bad because we deal with so many small farmers that, you know, sure their prices went up here a little bit here and there, but they were still available to us and people just enjoyed that we were still keeping up with what we were doing here with staying as local to Indiana as possible and still offering something great. So it was um, a very challenging, but it was, uh, yeah, it was nice. Cardinals patio and dining room are now open for in-person dining though they're still working out how to handle the seating at the bar. If you've ever been into our restaurant, it's just a long shotgun bar, so it's really, uh, it's very close quarters at any given time, uh, even with the space we have open now. So we just want to make sure that, you know, before we get uh, elbow to elbow, that we're definitely past this thing. And so you're back to creating menus for, for dine-in. What is your approach to, to the menus here? Is it sort of a seasonal, like do they change? Uh, yeah, they, they constantly change. Um, getting out of that pandemic with rehiring, it took us about a year and a half to get the full team that we wanted in here. So uh, the first menu rollout once we came back to dine-in was a little bit more um, definitely safe 
uh, compared to things uh, I've done in the past. Uh, but now with the spring menu rollout, it's, you're definitely seeing more of a more intricate side of things, a more uh, in-depth flavor profile, and um, it's more of a like last-minute knife works, and we're really putting some pressure on and getting things done last minute. Um, so, you know, my team might not like me for that, but it's definitely what uh, the city deserves. And, you know, we're just trying to make sure that uh, moving on and doing the seasonal changes that we don't overlook the main thing that we're trying to do here as far as, you know, my cooking and my approach to it, which is just, you know, staying honest to what we're doing. You know, if we're going to do uh, a brown sauce for a steak, you bet that started with a 30-hour chicken stock or beef stock somewhere. It, I, you know, I've been around in plenty of these restaurants in here and I've seen some shortcuts. And uh, luckily for me, you know, hanging out with um, the likes of chefs of like Dave Talon, Seth Elgar, and Jeff Finch, you know, shout out to those guys. Um, you know, if anything, they taught me that, hey, you're going to have a headache because this is just the way it needs to be. If you're going to do this kind of sauce, it, you need to start with chicken stock. You need to start with this. And it was nice. It's just nice to see that integrity in their cooking and just how they passed it on to myself and how I do my absolute best to keep that going. Um, you know, that creates a lot of headaches and a lot of time constraints in a kitchen. But um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you can't beat the flavor. You know, some people will always ask me what we do to it. And it sounds super simple, but you got to find the time and the, the love for it. That's all it really is. Chef Abel Garcia discovered his love for food and cooking when he took some time off from college. He'd been on a path towards a law degree, but he was questioning whether or not it was a good fit for him. He took a year off and found himself in the restaurant industry. He fell in love with the work and the culture. Just the, the pace of it, of it all. And you know, my family has always done like big parties. And even if it's just our own family, it's just like heavily catered. You know, there's just not, a, you're not leaving, you know, with an, with, a, uh, with an empty stomach at all. So it was like having that kind of catering already happened in my family um, for just about any occasion. It just made it really easy to be like, wow, I just, it's almost like being with my family all the time and, and not just being with them, but also at the best times. Because, you know, those big, you know, party days that I'm talking about, you know, they're Fourth of July, Christmas, you know, all those holidays. And to make it happen almost on a daily uh, and then still get paid for it was definitely the road I wanted to get down to. It was just a match made in heaven that there was something that I knew I could never learn everything about and I would have to keep researching. So, and it just keeps surprising me to this day. You know, no matter if I use something that's as old as a Jackie Pan's father's recipe or something as modern as some new molecular gastronomy, it's, it's still something that uh, I love waking up nervous, not knowing something and having to approach it. So, it's, um, so yeah, coming uh, you know, over the years into that and uh, like, I, like I said, mentioning the, the chefs I worked for, um, they really uh, will spark your interest and once those people really reaffirm what you're doing and really make it look possible, that's, uh, that was the other part of it, was just like, oh yeah, I can do this. I asked Chef Abel Garcia to share his vision for the work he's doing at Cardinal. Really enjoying making things happen in Indiana. You know, people that are doing things for Indiana, that are growing things for Indiana, need to be sold to people in Indiana. And I think that's what the next uh, phase of my cooking here is. We have like a farmer that's working with us to grow the 75 variety of cornmeal that I was talking about. And that's just as simple as seed preservation. We're just gonna have here like um, those varieties of corn. Um, we're gonna have three, uh, four coming in and uh, we're gonna be focusing on that as a bread and butter board. So we're gonna have three different types of corn meals, three different types of butter. We're gonna have a lemon herb, a bone marrow butter, and a duck fat butter to go with all those. 
So it's, uh, it's three different crazy butters going with three different crazy types of cornmeal. Uh, but it's really just about letting people just take in those different types of corn because they all have different levels of sweetness, uh, bitterness, and I, obviously grit. So is it going to be like a made into a cornbread? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, that's, I mean, that's such a classic, so, you know, Southeast American and also just Indiana thing. It's like, you know, we do corn in Indiana. I think we're the fifth largest producer of corn right now. So why not just, uh, you know, it's something so simple that it's overlooked. Um, and now it's just time to be like, you know what, hey, you know, people in Indiana are growing this heirloom corn in Indiana. And it's just, you know, it's if you want to invest in Indiana, simply just buy this cornbread. <laughs> but yeah, get your reservations in, get something inside or outside. Um, right now we have our string menu rolling. And right, uh, it's looking like late June is also going to be our next menu rollout for the summer. So if you can't make us now, that you know, put that on your calendar for the next time you can visit. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Chef Abel Garcia, the executive chef at Cardinal Spirits, a local craft distillery with a tasting room and restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana. Subscribe to Earth Eats on YouTube so you won't miss those recipes he shared coming soon. Find links and more on our website, eartheats.org. have some great news for local listeners, or any listeners who happen to have black locust trees growing in your area. We might actually get some locust flowers this year. Last year, we got a late frost just as they were blooming, so we didn't get to harvest any. It might have happened the year before, too. I don't know. I was distracted. Early days of the global pandemic and all. This is the year. I've been saving this next recipe for two years, and I'm excited that we finally get to share it. Dedicated Earth Eats listeners might remember a recipe from a few years back. Chef Daniel Orr makes a locust blossom jelly. You can find the recipe for that on our website, eartheats.org. This recipe for black locust flower fritters comes from my partner, Carl. He's the only person I know who makes these, besides his brother, who lives in Kentucky. So for this one, I had to look no further than my own backyard. Well, and down the street for the flowers. Locust flowers are easy to spot. Just look up. The trees are usually pretty tall, with dark bark and branches dipping down, covered in lacy clusters of shimmering white flowers. You can usually find them late April, early May, and they stand out since most of the other trees have already leafed out. So I went out this morning to search for black locust flowers, and they were super easy to find. There are trees all along the bee line here in Bloomington, just dripping with the flowers. And there are some trees in which the branches are low enough that I could just walk right up to them and start pulling flowers off. But sometimes you have to get a ladder to get to them. 
And now I am pulling off the flowers off the stem one by one until I have four cups. The fritter batter is one and a half cups of flour and a can of seltzer water. Some people use beer, but seltzer water will work just fine. And then I've added a teaspoon of vanilla. Next, I will fold in these beaten egg whites that are that have peaks, but they're not too stiff. I'm folding the egg whites into the flour and seltzer water or flour and beer mixture. In the refrigerator, I have four cups of black locust flowers that I picked this morning. I mix those with a quarter cup of sugar and three tablespoons of orange flavoring. The recipe I have calls for the recipe calls for Grand Marnier, but I just use the orange flavoring, organic orange flavoring that I found at the grocery store. So now I'm going to fold in these flowers that have been mixing that I mixed with sugar and the orange flavoring, and I put those in the refrigerator for an hour. Everything, I got everything cold. And that's it for the batter. Now I'm gonna take them to the deep fryer, and with one third cup scoops, I'm gonna make, say, four or five or six fritters at a time. We'll see how many fit. And we'll cook them for four minutes per side. Just to back up a bit, the first thing you want to do once you've harvested your flowers and picked them off the stems is mix them with some sugar and Grand Marnier or orange extract. Cover them, put them in the fridge for an hour. Next, you want to get your deep fryer ready. Fill it with peanut oil and set the temp at 375. Next, separate your eggs and beat the egg whites until they have peaks, but they aren't too stiff. Now you're ready to mix up the fritter batter. Add the chilled and sweetened black locust flowers, and then it's time to fry the fritters. Okay, so this is a recipe that I have adapted from my brother's recipe, who in turn adapted his recipe from Jacques Papin, who recommends making uh, acacia flower fritters as well, but I've never tried that. So now I'm putting in uh, quarter cupfuls of the batter into the 375 degree oil. You could make this on stovetop, but I'm making it in an electric deep fryer outside in my backyard on a beautiful spring day. This recipe makes a lot of fritters and uh, they're best in the moments after they've been made. So to prevent us from getting sick to our stomach, we usually try and invite people over to have fritters with us. Our neighbors are due any minute and these will be done in a few minutes. The recipe that I have says uh, cook them for four minutes on one side and then turn them over and cook them for four more but it looks like these are gonna be done in a lot less time than that. This has been about three minutes and I think they are done. I'm cooking these at 375 degrees. They're nicely browned, 
So uh, I'm going to take them out and put them on a wire rack and let them drip off a little bit. Then we'll put them on a platter and we'll sprinkle some confectioner's sugar on top to add a little grace. Our neighbors arrive through the back gate. Robin and her three kids, Lucia, Nova, and Colette. Lucia was the first to give them a try. What do they taste like? Like a donut, sort of, except less sweet. Mm. Really good. Can you taste the flowers? A flower donut. Yeah, a flower donut. <laughs> it makes a really good sound on the on the microphone. I bet it's real crisp. <laughs> it melts. In your in your mouth. Mm. Melt in your mouth crunch. Doesn't get much better than that. You will notice the flowers, even in all that fried dough. They have a lush fragrance and a sweet nectar-like flavor that mingles nicely with the orange. So, keep an eye out for those locust flowers in the next couple weeks, and you can try this recipe yourself. You don't need a deep fryer. A heavy skillet or a Dutch oven works great too. We have the instructions for black locust flower fritters on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening, and happy spring. The Earth Eats team includes Ayabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Naisha Douglas, Marianne LaGreco, Abel Garcia, Erica Sagon, and everyone at Cardinal Spirits, Carl Pearson, Robin, Lucia, Nova, and Colette. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.